All right, uh, Romans chapter nine. Um, we're gonna shift a little bit in in the teaching in Romans. The first eight verses was uh, uh, very focused on the grace of God, the grace of God, uh, justified by grace through faith. Um, and we're going to continue that a little bit, but the next few chapters are going to focus on <clears throat> the, the the status of Israel. Um, I'm, I've been working on something over the last couple of weeks or so um, in seeing how much of the Bible in, is is the encouragement of God to focus on grace and not on works. That we are saved by grace through faith, not of works. Um, James says, I'll show you my faith by my works. But we don't get grace because of our works. And chapter 9 deals with the fact that Israel's real problem with Christ is that they do not want to let go of the law. The problem is, if you choose to reject grace, you're automatically now subject to the penalty and the ramifications of the law. And so, in these first five verses of chapter 9 are a little emotional and quite uh, beautiful. Paul says, I tell the truth in Christ... I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So as we go through these first five verses on a Sunday night, I really believe all of you can relate to these verses. So Paul gets done sharing the fact that we're no longer under law, but under grace. And what shall we do? Shall we continue in sin? And he brought us through all of those things, crucified with Christ and he finally pleads with Israel and he says, I have a clear conscience. I'm not lying. And I feel that way sometimes when you're talking to your children or your, or your grandchildren or about the fact that this is the truth. I'm a, what is our motivation? What, you know, really think about the Apostle Paul. What did he gain from an earthly perspective for his changing from Judaism to following Christ. What did it cost him? It cost him everything. It cost him his standing in the community. It cost him complete comfort in the material things because he was going to be an incredibly a respected Pharisee, um, and it cost him. That there, if we look, read verses in Corinthians where he was uh, left for dead today, he was said I think two or three times he was beaten with thirty-nine stripes. Uh, so it cost him physically, and eventually cost him his life on earth. What he gained was eternal life, salvation. But the motivation for especially in 2022, if you'll continue to stand for Christ, it's becoming less and less acceptable, socially acceptable. Uh, 
So your faith is really tested. And if you don't waver, don't compromise, people will see that. So he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for the brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. What a verse. He says, I'm, tell, I'm not lying to you. My heart is broken because you won't listen to the gospel. It's broken. And he says an incredible thing in verse 3. I wish I were accursed from Christ for my brethren. When we're praying for our children, grandchildren, siblings, parents to come to know Christ, you know, sometimes within that prayer, you might say something like, oh, Lord, I'd give anything to see my child saved. I'd give anything. And this is what Paul's saying here. What he's asking for is impossible. He's saying, you know, if I could be accursed from Christ and all of you be in Christ, I would, I would willingly. Well, he can't do that. It's not spiritually or physically possible. However, it is exactly what Christ did for us. The Bible says, cursed is anyone who hangs on the tree. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So picture what we talked about this morning. God and Jesus in heaven seeing mankind now without any possibility of ever keeping a law. They've eaten the fruit. Sin is ever before them. And Jesus saying, boy, if I wish that I were accursed, that these could know you, Father. But he could. And he became a curse, became sin that we might. That's love. That's really love. And, and if you love your grandchildren, children, siblings, parents, how, whoever you're praying for, just remember that, that God's love for you goes far beyond any love that you have for your loved ones. It's incredible how much he loves us. So he says, you are my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, the promise of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. So he says, look at verse 3. You are my countrymen according to the flesh. And this is something we want to talk about for a second. When you become a Christian, you are a new creature. Old things are passed away. All things become new. And you become adopted into the family of God. The Bible says that there is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And we call each other brothers and sisters in Christ. Now I have a blood brother. Uh, but my brother Tim only applies to verse 3. I do sorrow in the fact that he is an atheist. I sorrow in the fact that his physical body is really breaking down. He's, he's uh, uh, ill, got osteoporosis. He's, he's HIV positive, and he's taken HIV positive meds since he was 
in his 30s, I believe, and, and they're just wreaking havoc on his body. Um, and he's looking older every time I see him. Um, and he is my brother, in verse 3, according to the flesh. Do you see? He's not my brother in the spirit. He's not my brother in Christ. We have nothing in common. Nothing. He is a liberal homosexual atheist. And just to be, this may offend some of you, I don't mean it to offend any of you, but he refuses to talk to me until I get vaccinated. He just won't talk to me until I get vaccinated. Um, so, but we're still brothers, do you see? So Paul looks at Israelites as being his fleshly countrymen. However, he's not connected to them anymore spiritually. Does that make sense to everybody? He says, you are Israelites. And, and he goes through all the amazing things that, that, that God did for the Israelites, including bringing Jesus Christ, which was the ultimate purpose of the Israelite nation anyway, wasn't it? And he's got sorrow because they just don't see it. And, you know, we see this when, you know, uh, we see some, uh, I'll say fool. I shouldn't say the word fool. The Bible says call no man fool. But a foolish person who would accept an award for an ungodly song and thank God for the award, do you see? Or wear a big cross and you think, boy, you're, you don't know, even know. You don't even know. Um, so we become separated from our fleshly family when we commit ourselves to walk in the spirit of God in fact Luke 12 if you, if you want to turn there you can I'll read this to you um, these are pretty famous verses that you probably are familiar with and they're quite shocking to anybody who would read them that believes God is just a God of love and accepts everybody and everything is, is, is candy and roses. But Luke twelve fifty one says, Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, but rather division. So Jesus proclaims right away that his message is going to bring division. Well, what kind of division? Verse 52 of Luke 12. For from now on, five in one house will be divided. Three against two, two against three. Father will be divided against his son, son against his father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So it, while it doesn't give God any joy that a house is divided, we have been Christians long enough to see how Christ divides houses. We see it, we've seen it here over the years because uh, we live in a predominantly Catholic town and we've had those situations where someone through a wana or an event or sunrise service or something uh, gives their life to God and begins to come to this church and they are really have a hard time with the Catholic side of the family. It becomes a a real challenge and we've seen that with individuals I won't name them but it's been quite a challenge and some of you have had the same challenges with your family and, and Liz and I haven't hid the challenges with our family 
Um, but that is part of this, you know, Jesus, I got to go bury my father. And he says, what? Let the dead bury the dead. This, this idea of taking up your cross and following, sometimes it is to the uh, detriment of, of your family relationships. And we have to be careful because there's a very common cultural saying in the, in our, in the United States, and it is family first. And it is God first. It's always God first. I remember uh, when Liz and I were engaged, and I said, we got engaged, and I said, oh, I love you more than anything in the whole world. And she just got this look in her eyes and said, you better not ever say that again. And I said, oh, it works in all the movies. What happened? And she said, you have to love God first. You have to, or this is not going to work. And she was right, as she always is. Um, Verse 6. As he is speaking in a general term in the first five verses about the nation of Israel, his countrymen, in verse 6 he brings it a little bit towards individuals. And this is a very important thing for us to remember. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect. And what a beautiful testimony, Carol. Thank you for sharing that. Because in a club that is much smaller than we anticipated 20-something years ago. I really thought that the kids in town, that this was going to be, you know, and Dave and Karen have been doing this a long time. Uh, Clubs usually take off. And for some reason, God has not allowed this club to take off to have 50 kids. Um, And we've done different things and tried to do different things. Uh, So sometimes it it, it gets disheartening when five kids show up. Uh, But Courtney and Brian, we see uh, the incredible... uh, leadership of our our trek group that's that's becoming with with sarah and the others and we see what happens now with uh dale and micah and uh yeah the word of god is taking effect uh but it may not be taking effect in droves but it's taking effect and that's what happens in israel for they are not all israel who are of israel that interesting statement all right, and, and this is positive and negative. Israel, we just found out, is a. By the way, that the word Israel uh, means. Like, remember, Jacob wrestled with God. So there's 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 a couple different deeper meanings of the word Israel. It means to wrestle with God, but it also means to be ruled by God. It means to wrestle with God and lose. <laughs> that God rules over you. And so this idea that not everybody that goes to church is a Christian. Not everybody who says they're a Christian is a Christian. And not every Israelite is Israel. Nor are they children because they're the seed of Abraham. Well, why not? Well, because Abraham's got two sons. And there's a whole bunch of Muslims out there that are physically the seed of Abraham through Ishmael 
but Ishmael was not what God chose. And not everybody that goes to church and everybody who is in a Christian home is a Christian. It's very important that we, we emphasize that one our chill, with our children. Uh, they have to be uh, make that decision on their own someday, don't they? So he says, not everyone, verse 7, are children because they are seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. So we know the story of Abraham. He went to Hagar. They had a son named Ishmael. And God said, nope, that's not how it's going to be. That's not where the seed of salvation. Salvation is going to come through the seed of Isaac. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, they are not children of God. But the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Not only this, but when Rebekah conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. Again, it's not of works. So this is what it says in verse 12 and 13. They're very important. It was said to her, Rebekah, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I have hated. So before they were even capable of making a decision for God, or sinning, or doing anything right, God had elected Jacob. Jacob he loved, Esau he hated. Uh, you could look at it as Jacob was set apart for God and Esau was set apart. And it is a picture of grace and works. Salvation and not salvation. Israel wrestled with God. They were ruled by God. But Ishmael was not the way to salvation. Esau was not the way to salvation. It was Jacob. And today... Christ is the only way to salvation. It's not through religion. It's not through Muhammad. It's not through any Hindu gods. It's only through Christ. John 12, 25 says, He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. So Esau is a picture of, Jacob and Esau are a picture of, of salvation. Our life in Christ is Jacob. Our life in part from Christ is the world. And God rejects it. That is not the way to, to God. It's not through religious acts. It's not through any other thing but Jesus Christ. And God is sovereign. And so what he, he's saying here is even though Israel has rejected God, rejected Christ, rejected grace... God has always kept his salvation promise going, even through a nation that continually rejected and turned away from him. And God, there's a word for this, and it's the word remnant. There was always a remnant in Israel to keep the promise of God going. And that remnant, I always look at it as a, a carpet remnant. When you go 
into a carpet store, they have remnants. And a carpet remnant, well, how do they make a carpet remnant? Well, they put the carpet down. What's ever left over, they make a little sample of so you can look at it and touch it and feel it and look at the color. And that God always kept, even uh, when Israel deserved to be completely destroyed, even through the flood, God kept the eight to make sure that his promise was kept. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And in our nation of America, you know, Larry mentioned a very interesting thing today about the idea of God making sure, even through a drought, that we have enough rain to get by, that there is still food. And, and that can be attributed to the grace of God, also attributed to you as the remnant of God who prays for rain, who, who sees what's happening in the world today and we cry out to God for his mercy on this, this, our children, his mercy on this nation, his mercy on this planet. So this becomes a very hard question because verse 14 is when some of the issues with Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated coming to, to be. And it says, what shall we say then? Verse 14. Is there unrighteousness with God? So Paul has done this throughout the book of Romans. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Romans 6.1. In which he anticipates the questions that come when we learn about this election of God. And the first question is, well... That's not fair. It's not fair to Esau. God can't hate anything. God hates Esau? Well, that doesn't seem right. And he anticipates it. Is there unrighteousness with God? And what's the answer in verse 14? Of course not. Certainly not. Can't be any unrighteousness with God. We'll never understand how, why, or or the process of God's sovereign election. However, you can't throw it out just because you don't understand it. I, I don't think I'll ever understand how a car works. But I know where to put the key. I know how to turn it, and I know how to get it started. I know who to call when it doesn't start. But we want to ask the question, how could God hate Esau? But have you ever thought about this question? How could God love Jacob? We lean towards the negative of God. I cannot trust a God who would send people to hell. Okay. He doesn't do that. Can you trust a God who came not to condemn the world, but the world through him might be saved? Would you trust in a God who would not allow because of his long suffering and not willing that any should perish, that he sent his only begotten son so that those who trust in him wouldn't have to go to hell? That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us? Why do we skip all those verses? And we only lean on the negative. Well, because I think most of the world doesn't want there to be a God. They don't want God to be merciful and loving. They want God to be so mean that they can go ahead and, and walk away. 
I read a thing today. It's just typical, just so we understand what's happening. So it was, I think, a, a Lutheran church that named a lesbian bishop, their first lesbian bishop. And so they interviewed her. And she says, in her interview, she says, my goal is that the crosses be removed and Muslim uh, literature be available so that we can unite these two religions. And the cross is offensive to the Muslims and we'll never be able to truly walk in unity without getting rid of the cross and putting up these Muslim. Well, obviously, there's no understanding of salvation or Christ or anything. But in order for the church to look you know, like they're woke and, and, and awake and moving forward progressively. Uh, the lesbian part becomes less and the fact that this is uh, absolute blasphemy, do you see? And so, can't do that. We have to just accept the truth. And we'll see that more. Look at verse 15. He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll have compassion in whomever I will have compassion. That's a direct quote from uh, Exodus chapter 33. Uh, we have a sovereign God. The sovereign God uh, means that God can open the eyes of anybody anytime he wants to. So why doesn't he just open the eyes of everybody? I don't know. I just don't know. But I do know he's righteous and sovereign. Verse 16. So then it's not of him who wills nor of him who runs but out of but of, of God who shows mercy. It's all gone, not by works of righteousness which we have done. Verse 17, the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and whom he wills he hardens. So now they use the Pharaoh as an example of a man who the Bible says clearly he hardened his heart. And would not allow the Pharaoh to let Israelites go. Now we know why. God says why. Because he was going to show his power in him. And it was very important for the 10th plague to get here. It was very important for Israel not to be released until the Passover came. The Passover is one of the clearest, most beautiful, most amazing prophetical pictures of Christ in all the Bible, in all history. The blood of the Lamb upon the door and death passes over. It's all Jesus Christ. So if they left during the frogs and during the blood or during the darkness, never would have had that illustration that God wanted. So what does God do? He uses Pharaoh to bring about his judgment, his power, and his revelation of salvation in the future. Once that was done, Red Sea opened, Israel was released. All in God's perfect timing. Verse 19, he anticipates the next question. You say to me, why does he still find fault in him? For who has resisted his will? This is a great question. It is a question that I have often been tempted to ask God. That question of why. Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are you doing this? Why does this? So the question is very good. 
God has revealed that Pharaoh had very little control over his own life. We talk about free will. Pharaoh didn't have any free will. God was using him and manipulating him to do his will the whole time. Yet, he still held Pharaoh responsible for his choices. That's where it gets a little deep and gets a little confusing. And we tend to say, well, wait a minute. If you're doing everything, hardening his heart, then how can you judge him for hardening his heart if you're the one who hardened his heart? By the way, I think that's a very good question. And it's a question I might ask. The answer is very telling. And the answer is all we need to know concerning this idea of election and sovereignty of God. And it says, verse 19, You will say to me, Why then does he find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? So what is God's answer to the question? It's none of your business. You wouldn't understand it if I told you. And this is where a true surrendered sacrificial living life accepts the scripture for what it says and you need to trust God that he is holy righteous sovereign and that his plans are not the best plans his plans are the only plans that will be successful and the minute we think that we're going to have some intellectual debate with God we are foolish we are the the clay we are the thing formed and his basic response is oh, you may not understand this whole election and sovereignty and but trust me and that's what I would say to anybody who's who's battling with some of these issues of Jacob have I loved Nisa how I hated it's just take the scripture for how it's written and trust God that he knows what he's doing to me, it brings hope. Some would say, well, if God only has mercy and who has mercy, then what if he doesn't want to have mercy on my uh, you know, cousin or doesn't have mercy on... And, and that, I look at it as, if I have a loved one who's running away from God, they can't run. They can't run. You cannot decide to reject God if God wants you was the apostle Paul seeking God's was he seeking to follow him no but what did God tell Ananias about Paul he's a chosen vessel of mine and he allowed him like we said in those verses that, that he put up with some of his shenanigans and, and allowed and used him for the martyr of Stephen but guess what Paul wasn't getting away God had a plan before the foundations of the earth for him. And God's not done. He's just not done. And so uh, there's a verse in the Bible 
that says that we should make supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving for all men. It's in 2 Timothy. So I separate my prayer time into those four sections of supplication, prayer, intercession. And on my intercession list is simply everybody who um, I know is not a Christian, who's not seeking God. So I'm going to seek God for them. And when I pray, I say, God, open their eyes. Have mercy on them. Lord, may they be a chosen vessel because they can't run away. And it takes a lot of pressure off us because it's not like, oh, if only I had said the right thing. I was told when I was in college, uh, one of the teachers asked if, if we had gone out to dinner that week. And then they asked, did you share the gospel with your waiter? And most of us thought, no, we really didn't share the gospel with our waiter. And he says, well, if your waiter goes to hell, their blood is on your hands. Well, the doctrine of election takes all of that off of our shoulders. And we just simply preach the gospel. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So the process is the same. So let me just say this to you. This is two things that helps with all of this. Number one, uh, let's say we have these two men. <laughs> this person is chosen by God before the foundation of the earth. This person is completely on their own. Either they choose God or not choose God, and it's completely in this person's hand. Okay? So those are the two extremes of what you would call hyper-Calvinism and Arminianism, the two far directions. Either God does it all or man does it all. Got it? Okay. So how is this person going to become a Christian? God's going to chose him before the foundations of the earth. So what is going to be the process to get him to that? Well, he's got to hear the what? He's got to hear the gospel. When he hears the gospel, God's going to open the heart and he's going to become a Christian. Well, how is this person going to choose God on his own? What's he have to do? He has to hear the gospel. So the process that God uses is none of my business. It's out of my hands. I'm the clay. He's the potter. But what I do know, whether it is completely God or whether it is completely man, the process is the same. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We're going to see in Romans 10, God says, how are they going to hear unless somebody is sent to them to tell them? So guess what we get to do? We tell them. That's all we do. We preach the gospel. Because whatever side of this debate you're on, trust the scriptures and just preach the gospel and don't let it divide anything. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Just preach. That's what we do. And God says those really deep, dark questions that irritate you and bother you, don't even ask them. I got it. I don't 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 reply against God. I trust God. Verse twenty-two. Uh, these are the what ifs, and he just kind of goes, "Well, you know, what if God wanted to show His wrath to make His power known, endured much long suffering, that the vessels of wrath prepared before destruction." 
that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy he had prepared beforehand for his glory. He asks a silly little question here that, that is meant to be uh, encouraging to us. Uh, that you know, What if God is doing something greater than we could ever imagine? And the answer to that question is what? Of course he is. Of course he is. What if God has a better... Have you ever thought about this when you're going through trials? And it seems like everything's falling apart? Now, what if God has a greater purpose? Let me ask you guys, because you're mature Christians. Has anything ever happened negatively in your life that turned out to be a great thing? I think it has. Verse 24. Even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. He says, look at this whole plan was to, to expand the gospel to everybody. And we should have known this because Hosea said, I will call my people who are not my people and her beloved who are not beloved. That's the Gentiles. Praise God for that. Amen. It'll come to pass in the place where it was said, you are not my people. There shall be called the sons of the living God. The Bible says those who trust in him have the power to be called the what? Sons of God. Isaiah also wrote concerning Israel, though the number of children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work, cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. Uh, so he says, Isaiah says, look at, even though there Israel is sands of the sea, there's going to be a remnant. Meaning, Israel's going to turn from God. And God's going to turn to the Gentiles. In the New Testament, we have a very similar verse. Larry and I were talking about this yesterday. The idea that the Bible says that there are two gates. What's the difference between them? One is broad and one is narrow. Where do the righteous go? And the Bible says very few go in. So realistically, we have to expect when it comes to numbers, the success rate in, in reaching people for Christ, we are told ahead of time it's going to be small. How many soils were the seeds thrown to? Four. How many was good? That's one-fourth, 25%. I tell you, if we could reach 25% of this town with the gospel, that would be incredible, wouldn't it? But it's a narrow road, and it's always been that way. Verse 29, Isaiah said, Unless the Lord of the Sabbath had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. We would have been like Gomorrah. Boy, unless Jesus came, he's the seed. We see what's happening in our country. And the only reason it's not happening to you is because of the Spirit of God that dwells within you. The Holy Spirit convicting you of sin. The Spirit of God is all still within our nation because we're not Sodom and Gomorrah yet. There's still a remnant. And even though there are Israel's like sands of the sea, there's always going to... We've seen that as we study Wednesday nights as we go through the kings and we see there's always an Elisha there. You know, there's a Jehoshaphat there. And we want to be that, that one out of the, the grains of sand that, that 
is founded on Christ serving him because we bring with us the spirit of Jesus Christ that lives within us. And so God is sovereign. He's in control. Our job is to preach the gospel, to be light of the world, to be salt of the earth. And it's going to be narrower and narrower, I believe, in the future unless God brings revival, which certainly could happen. So then it closes with the real crux of what we're going to talk about over the next couple of weeks. What shall we say then? Boy, Paul likes that statement, doesn't he? He uses it quite a bit. That Gentiles <clears throat> did not pursue righteousness. They have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained the law of righteousness what a balance what a comparison the gentiles who really were not pursuing anything religious just living their lives they weren't going to temples they weren't sacrificing animals they weren't bringing their tithes they weren't on they weren't keeping a sabbath they were doing nothing to pursue righteousness and yet, the sovereign God of the universe bestowed upon them the righteousness of Christ and his only son died for the sins. Israel, on the other hand, does nothing except pursue righteousness. Through what? Through the law, through works, through sacrifices, through Sabbath, through legalism. This is the same thing today that people who pursue God through religious ceremony this is the main difference between protestant and catholicism catholicism is draped with works and pursuing righteousness and constantly confessing your sins and doing this and saying this and having this no christ does all of the work we receive his glory receive his righteousness receive his truth it's bestowed upon us and Jesus told the, the people when they went to the promised land, I'm going to give you food you didn't work for, houses you didn't build. You don't have to do anything. Surrender. Be a living sacrifice. Take up your cross. Follow me. They have not attained the lot of righteousness. Why, verse 32? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. And they stumbled at the stumbling stone as it is written behold I lay in Zion a stumbling stone a rock of offense and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame so how does Jesus become a stumbling stone because it takes away all of man's part in it and the Israelites pursue and pursue and pursue to be righteous and they come up short We live under an incredible time of grace. And your sins are as far as the east is from the west because for whatever reason, God has shown to us his truth, revealed to us. And he knew it would be revealed to us before the foundations of the world. And there are other people in this town who God is waiting to reveal to them the righteousness of Christ. How are they going to hear unless we tell them? 
So whatever the process is, you read it, study it yourself, look at the scriptures. Uh, it's not important for us to know how the car runs for it to, to drive us to town. There's so much about God. That we, the Bible says that we look right now at God through a glass darkly. But someday we'll see him face to face and then we'll understand it all. But for now, I fully accept that he knows what he's doing. And he's righteous and holy and does nothing that is unrighteous, unfair, and ungodly. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your blessings. Thank you for salvation. We pray, Lord, that you would do a miracle in this town, Lord, by opening ears and eyes to those who we would never expect to come to know you. In Jesus' name, we praise you and thank you. Amen.